Hey, good morning. Let's stand.
Father, thank you that we can stand before your throne. We can stand before you dressed in righteousness. We thank you that through the cross, through the resurrection, Lord, you have justified us, you freed us. Jesus, we are covered in your blood. Thank you, Lord. Lord, would you fill us with assurance and confidence that we can come to you as our Father. Expressing any feelings that we have, any needs that we have to you, Lord. Without any fear. We love you, Lord. We sing to you, praise you, and we thank you. Amen.
You can take a seat. Kids, you can be released to your class. Please remember to give Lisa your palms back. Okay, good morning, everybody. Good morning. In, uh, in the New Testament, in a book, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, there is a recording of an early confession, an early statement of faith in the church. I thought we'd begin here this morning uh, before the announcements. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 5 and 6, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven, are on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we through whom are all things and through whom we exist. The very earliest stages of the Christian church, they had already come to this confession of faith, confession of belief. It's our hope and prayer this morning that we will experience the one to whom all we owe all things and through whom all things exist. Well, welcome everybody. We're glad to have each and every one of you here this morning, whether you're in person or watching online. Excited to have you here the Sunday before Easter, Palm Sunday. Um, that week that began uh, the Passion and Holy Week. Um, if you're here for the first time or recently visiting, there is a connect card right in front of you in that pocket in front of you. We'd love to hear from you to know how you heard about the church and if there's anything that we might be able to do to serve you or to provide, give you any information. Um, you can also stop by our welcome table before you leave. We have a, a, a gift bag we'd love to give you with some information uh, about the church. It's got a, a mug and some other information that, about Linworth. We'd love to be able to connect with you. So again, thank you for being here. And we do hope that you experience God in a very profound way this morning. Okay, let me walk through what will happen next weekend. We hope you are in town. We hope you can experience the celebration of Easter with us and that you can include friends. Uh, we encourage you, by the way, to share uh, uh, Facebook posts, Instagram posts, social media. Share those with your friends and include them and invite them to uh, our various services this next weekend. So. Uh, April 15th, we'll start Friday night, a, a good Friday service. Uh, by the way, children are welcome to that time. It'll last about an hour, but it is a reflective service to help us enter into the crucifixion. And uh, so it's a series of remembrances that will help us to remember Jesus. We'll take the bread and the cup that night as well. So plan on joining us 7 o'clock Good Friday. Then on Sunday morning, we'll have our sunrise service at 645. Right now, the plan is to be outside. This is about as late as Easter gets, so we want to try it this year. Bring your own chair and... Um, It'd be a short service and then will be followed immediately 
buy a breakfast together at about 7 o'clock or 7.05. So uh, we'd love to have you come to our sunrise service. It'll be behind the church. And then finally, we will have an additional service on Sunday morning. So we'll have two services at 8 and at 10. Those will be the same identical service on Sunday morning. So plan on joining us for Easter. Include your family and your friends. We're excited about sharing this together. And then finally, last announcement. There's more information in our e-letter or on the Bible app. We're having a landscaping workday on Saturday, the 23rd. This is for everyone. Men, women, boys, girls, you're all welcome to join us on a workday. So again, you can get more information in our e-letter or on the Bible app for that. Okay, Nick, Pastor Nick is going to take us. This will be our, our last edition of our series through First Kings. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. I hope you're having a good weekend so far. It's nice to see that sunshine uh, this morning. I was at a soccer game yesterday in the snow, and uh, it was not my favorite thing, but uh, glad to see the sunshine this morning. Um, as Chris just said, we are finishing up our series through First Kings, and uh, hopefully you have enjoyed this series. Uh, you've been able to connect with God as we've walked through uh, an Old Testament book that perhaps you've not spent a lot of time in. And as we wrap up the book today, what we're going to see in these last three chapters uh, is they're going to focus on the utter failure of King Ahab and his disregard for the word of God. And this week, as I was thinking about uh, this idea of failure, it certainly seems like something that our culture is a little bit obsessed with right now. Uh, whether we're talking about things like cancel culture or uh, the numerous documentaries that have come out recently highlighting different individuals or companies uh, who have failed just epically. Um, in fact, I just heard recently in a couple uh, weeks, Netflix is releasing a new documentary around the rise and fall of Abercrombie & Fitch. Um, now, there was another one a while back called Lulu Rich, which talked about Lou LaRoe and its demise as a company. Um, I've not seen any of these, but apparently some other ones out there is Theranos, uh, We Crashed, Inventing Anna, Super Pump, The Battle for Uber, and, and on and on we could go. And not only that, but I think you could even argue that the same fascination has leaked its way into the church world. In fact, just this last year, uh, Christianity Today put out a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And in that podcast, it, it highlighted and talked about the failure of a Seattle megachurch called Mars Hill and around its lead pastor. Um, it reached not only number one in the religion podcast category, but it actually made its way all the way up to number three in the overall categories for podcasts, which is really pretty amazing when you think about that. Um, with that, there even began to be thrown around this new term called failure porn, which highlighted an, our unhealthy interest and even our own sense of uh, entertainment and satisfaction at seeing others fail and learning about that. And, and maybe that's a danger that we need to be aware of. However, though, when we come to the Bible, and specifically when we come to a book like Kings, what we see here is that God does show us over and over again the failings of Israel and their leaders. Now, the difference, though, between God's word and these documentaries and podcasts that I just mentioned is that, number one, God sees people in situations in an unbiased, just way. In other words, when God uh, points out someone's failures, he does so in a way that is fair, that is just, and that is true to all of the facts. 
But not only that, the main reason we are uh, given these stories in the first place is to warn us. In fact, that's exactly what 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us when talking about the Old Testament. In verse 11, uh, Paul writes this, he says, these things happened to them as examples and were written down for us as warnings on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. You see, these stories from the Old Testament, which highlight Israel and their leaders' failures, they aren't recorded here for our entertainment or to make us feel superior, like, oh man, how stupid were those people? No, rather they're given to us as warnings. And these stories, they should humble us. They should cause us to realize our own weaknesses and vulnerabilities, and and therefore they should cause us to, to know and to acknowledge our need and our dependence upon God. Now, even with that said, I I still think that it's interesting from a historical perspective that as we come back to the book of 1 Kings here, we see that God has dedicated six whole chapters to Ahab's reign. And all six, but particularly these last three, emphasize the failure of Ahab to obey and listen to the word of God. In fact, one commentator pointed out, he said this, no other king received such a literary battering from the sacred writer, but no other kind the likes of Ahab had come along. Chapters 20 through 22 then intend to display Ahab's repeated and fatal opposition to the word of Yahweh. You see, when we think of this, I think we have to keep going back to what is the purpose of this book? And like we said during that first week of the series, the main purpose of the book of Kings is to answer the question, how did Israel, how did God's chosen people, the apple of God's eye, how in the world did they end up in exile? And what this book has highlighted story after story is that they ended up in exile because they broke the terms of the covenant. They committed idolatry and ultimately they disregarded and disobeyed the word of God. And no greater example is given in this book than King Ahab. And so let's look at these last three chapters now. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Kings chapter 20. Um, If you need to borrow one of our pew Bibles, the story will be found on page 302. And our outline this morning to help us, uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground here, so I'm not going to have you stand and have me read three chapters. So uh, I'll do a little bit of reading. I'll do some summarizing, but we're going to work through all three chapters here. And our outline to uh, help us in this will be five main movements in the story. First, uh, we'll look at a surprising mercy. Secondly, a strange rebuke. Uh, Third, in chapter 21, we'll see a scandalous story. Fourthly, we'll look at a strained conversation. And then finally, we'll finish with a sovereign shot. But before we dive in here, let me open up uh, our time here with a word of prayer. Father, we uh, thank you for this morning. God, we invite your Holy Spirit to come to illuminate the scriptures to us. Pray, God, you would just uh, cause these stories to come alive in our hearts. And I pray that we would be able to, to see them as warnings for our own lives, Lord. We are no better But for the grace of God, go I, Lord. We know that it's only by your grace that we can love you and follow you and obey you. And so I just pray, Father, you give us hearts to see, uh, (laughs) eyes to see, hearts to know, um, and ears to hear, Lord. And so we ask that now in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, so starting with the first one here, surprising mercy. Let's look together now at verse 1 of chapter 20. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and he closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel. And he said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children are also mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. The messengers came again and they said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold and your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time. And they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. Okay, so what we see here is that, uh, if you remember last week, we were looking at the life of Elijah and his ministry, and now the scene has shifted back to King Ahab. And what we see is that the king of Syria comes and attacks Israel and completely surrounds the city of Samaria and begins to lay siege to it. And at this time, then some messengers are, are sent from King Ben-Hadad, and he comes to, they come to Ahab and they give him uh, his demands. And as we just read, the initial demands are pretty intense. I mean, he says, I'm gonna take your money, your wives, and your children. And apparently Ahab wasn't too fond of his family because he's like, that's fine, you can have them. And you know, I guess if you were married to uh, Queen Jezebel, you might feel like he's doing you a favor. Like, yeah, go ahead, that's fine, you know. Um, but, but either way, he agrees to these terms. But then in verse five, the messengers come back and they say, well, you know, actually, Ben-Hadad wants to take not just those things, but he wants to search your entire, uh, your, your palace and, and the, uh, the houses of your servants. And he wants to take away anything that you find valuable, anything that pleases you. And so if the initial demands weren't bad enough, these new demands are too much for Ahab to bear. And so in verse seven, we see him call together the elders of the land and he tells them what's going on. And they reply by telling him, look, don't give in to those demands. And so Ahab sends that message back to Ben-Hadad, who obviously doesn't receive that news very well. In fact, in verse 10, uh, Ben-Hadad replies by saying, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if enough dust remains in Samaria to give each of my men a handful. Ahab then uh, replies in verse 11 with a little bit of his own trash talking, and, and he says, oh yeah? Well, tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off, which is basically an ancient, ancient equivalent of our saying of don't count your chickens before they hatch, or oh yeah, we'll see about that, right? Like they're trash talking each other here. Now again, let's, let's stop and think about this scene for a moment and try to wrap our minds around it. Um, because I think this is pretty insane given particularly what verse 1 told us. And that is that Ben-Hadad is not alone. In fact, he has 32 other kings and their armies fighting with him. In other words, what we see here is that Ahab and Israel, they're going for broke, right? Like there's zero chance of them winning this battle or getting out of this alive. And so I think they feel like, well, let's at least trash talk our way down in flames or something. But let's keep reading. Look what happens. Verse 13. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude 
Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they have said, By whom? And he said, Thus says the Lord, By the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, Who shall begin the battle? He answered, You. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. And after that, he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. Now, again, when you stop and look at this, this is amazing. Here you have Ahab. He's up a creek without a paddle. He's completely surrounded by 33 kings and their armies, and he has refused their terms of peace. And not only that, he has just spit some major trash talk. And, and you know that that had to motivate Ben-Hadad, and he was probably even more furious and motivated. And yet, even with all of that, with all of these things stacked against him, Ahab has not cried out to the Lord for help. But even still, in a surprising act of mercy and grace, God sends a prophet to tell Ahab that he's going to win the battle. And the reason that he's going to win the battle is so that Ahab will know that Yahweh is God. And not only that, but actually when you uh, look at this section as a whole, what you see is that it's not only a battle between Ben-Hadad and King Ahab, but actually it's really a battle between Ben-Hadad's word and will and Yahweh's word and will. What I mean by that is that in verses 3 and 5, we see it say there, thus says Ben-Hadad. But in verses 13 and 14, we see it say, thus says the Lord. And so the, the question that this passage is raising for us is this, will Ben-Hadad's word and will prevail or will Yahweh's? Well, let's find out. Verse 16. And they went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths. He and the 32 kings who helped him. The servants of the governors of the districts went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, men are coming out from Samaria. And he said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they've come out for war, take them alive. Clearly, he's a little drunk, right? Like, that doesn't make any sense, you know? <laughs> take them alive, or take them alive, you know? So these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts and the armies that followed him, and each struck down his man. The Syrians fled and Israel pursued them, but Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with a horseman. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. So again, in, a, in an amazing act of mercy and grace, God has caused Ahab and his meager and inexperienced army to win this incredible victory. We see here, however, that Ben-Hadad does escape. And so in the next scene, what happens is the prophet comes back to King Ahab and he tells him to strengthen himself. And he warns him that, that in the springtime, Ben-Hadad and his army is going to regroup and they're going to come again to fight them. And so he's giving him some heads up here. But after that, we get this uh, really humorous, I think, scene where Ben-Hadad's servants are trying to, uh, they're reflecting on the battle and they're trying to figure out like, what went wrong, right? Like, we so outnumbered and gunned them. Like, how in the world do we lose to these, you know, these inexperienced in this very small army? And so they're kind of brainstorming. And basically, they come up with this idea of, well, you know, I, I think what went wrong was that we fought them in the hills and, and, you know, their God is a God of the hills. And so next time we'll have to fight them in the plains and then surely we'll win. Yeah, I'm sure that's what went wrong. Uh, <laughs> verse 26. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. 
And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Syrians filled the country. And a man of God came near and he said to the king of Israel, thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, the Lord is a God of the hills, but he's not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all of this great multitude into your hand and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined and the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered in an inner chamber in the city. Okay, so once again, the Syrians are defeated. God humiliates them, and he shows them that their theology and their war strategy stink, right? Like, Yahweh doesn't care if you fight him in the hills or the plains or wherever. He owns it all, and he's king over all of it. And so again, given all that we know about Ahab, this really is a surprising act of mercy and grace towards him. He didn't ask uh, God for his help. He certainly didn't deserve it, and yet he gets shown it, and he, uh, he gets shown grace anyway. But let's go to our second movement in the story, and that is a strange rebuke. Okay, so let me just summarize a little bit here. So what happens next is in verse 31, we see Ben-Hadad and his remaining men surrender themselves to King Ahab. And very stupidly, Ahab lets Ben-Hadad live and even makes a covenant with him and then lets him go free. And so starting in verse 35, we, get, uh, we come across a very strange scene where a different unnamed prophet says to another prophet, uh, at the command of Yahweh, strike me in the face or punch me in the face. And the other prophet's like, no way, man, I'm not doing that. And then the other prophet says, well, since you didn't obey the command of the Lord, you're going to get killed by a lion after you leave here. Now, how in the world I ended up with both bizarre lion-killing stories in this book, I don't know. I think I drew the short straws when we listed out the, uh, the, the series here. But, but again, this is something we've seen before. The last time we saw a, a bizarre lion-killing prophet story was back in chapter 13. And when we went over that, I talked about just the seriousness and the high bar that the prophets of God were held to in terms of obedience. And the reason for that is very simply because they spoke on God's behalf and the people, were, uh, the people had to obey them. And, and so you couldn't have prophets who were disobedient. And so that's still true of this scenario as well. But I think the other thing I wanna say here just to maybe help us, I think this helps me is, is, is this, we know that God is good. We know that God is just. You see, I think the bottom line is this. You and I have to understand and believe that God is good and that he's just and that even though this story is not only bizarre but troubling, I think we also have to realize that we don't have all the facts here, right? Like we don't know this guy. We don't know what was going on in his life. But what we do know is that according to the Bible, just as Abraham declared in Genesis 18 when he said, will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? or as some translations say, do what is right? And the answer to that question is yes. Yes, he will. The judge of all the earth will always do what is just and what is right. And so maybe that'll help some of you. I know it doesn't totally resolve 
uh, a troubling passage like this, but but I but I do think we need to keep in line the or keep in mind the the whole storyline of the Bible, and we need to keep in mind what the Bible reveals about the character of God when we come across passages like this that that bother us that trouble us. But let's keep going here. Look at verse. What happens next? Verse thirty-seven. Then he found another man and said, "Strike me, please." And the man struck him and struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, your servant went out in the midst of the battle. And behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And the king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand, the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went out of his house, vexed, or to his house, vexed, and sullen, and came to Samaria. Okay, so as our outline indicates, this is definitely a strange way to rebuke someone, right? Like, punch me in the face, beat me up so I can, you know, do this whole thing and, 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 and uh, prophesy to King Ahab here. But, but even with that, what we see is that God does, in fact, use a prophet to once again confront Ahab for his lack of obedience. And unfortunately, this is just a constant theme in Ahab's life. God shows him mercy. He reveals himself to Ahab in some incredibly powerful ways, like, you know, what we saw a couple weeks ago at Mount Carmel, right? God very clearly demonstrated to Ahab that he alone is God. Or whether you want to talk about ending uh, the three-year drought or, or even here, these two incredible victories over Syria, God has clearly shown himself to Ahab. And yet each time Ahab ignores the word of God. And so because of that, God keeps sending him prophets to rebuke him and to try to get him to wake up and to repent and to turn back to God. And as we're about to see, he does sort of do that kind of once in his life. He sort of repents, but it just doesn't last very long, which brings us to the next movement in our story. And that is a scandalous story. Now, out of these three chapters that we're looking at today, this one here, chapter 21, is probably the one you're most familiar with. And it's definitely a very scandalous story. And it is so uh, for a couple of reasons, which I'll draw out here in a second. But let's look now at verse, or, uh, uh, chapter 21, verse 1. Now, Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may give it for a vegetable garden because it's near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I'll give you its value and money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth, the Jezreelite, had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and he turned away his face and he would eat no food. Okay, so the, the scene here is this. One day King Ahab uh, wakes up and he decides that he wants one of his neighbor's vineyards so he can turn it into a vegetable garden. 
Now, many commentators think that King Ahab had like a vacation home or a, a second residence in Jezreel. And so here he is perhaps at his vacation home, you know, sitting on the back porch, drinking his coffee, and he's kind of surveying his, his land. And he looks over and he sees his neighbor's land, his vineyard, and he thinks to himself, I want that. You know, that's a really nice looking piece of property. And so he approaches his neighbor, uh, Naboth, and, and he says, hey, either sell this to me or I'll trade you for a different vineyard. And, and in verse 3, Naboth, who uh, by all accounts seems to be a godly man, says to him, you know, I'm sorry, but I can't do that. Yahweh gave this family, uh, uh, gave my family this land as our inheritance, and, and God forbid that I should sell or trade it. Um, we see in verse 4 that Ahab, Ahab Storms off back to his house like a toddler who uh, was just told by his mom, no, you can't have that candy bar in the candy aisle, you know, or in the checkout line. And so he's off in his bedroom crying and, and, and being ridiculous. And, and his wife Jezebel comes in and sees him and, and she's like, why are you acting like this? And he's like, well, you know, I, I wanted Naboth's vineyard and he won't sell it to me. And, and Jezebel responds by basically like, man, you're pathetic. Like, you know, clean yourself up, quit crying, like, I'm going to take care of this problem for you. And then in verse 8, uh, after that, in verse 8, we're told that, that some, uh, Jezebel, the way she attacks this problem, is that she begins to write some letters in Ahab's name. And in the letters, she commands the local elders and leaders who lived in Naboth's city to hold a fast and to make sure that Naboth is there. And then she tells them to go out and find uh, two lowlifes, two uh, criminals that they can sort of pay off or buy off to come and to falsely uh, accuse Naboth and to say that they saw him cursing God and cursing the king. And, and, and if they did that, then they would have grounds for having Naboth put to death. And so this is the plan. And if you step back and look at this plan, what you see is that Jezebel is being very clever, but she's also being very evil. And the reason I say that is because she's committing an incredible act of injustice. And she's doing so by using both religion and the law to commit it and to hide the injustice. You see, we see her using religion. She says, you know, hey, let's hold this fast as the occasion to bring Naboth uh, and the elders together. And most likely she did that because maybe she thought Naboth's uh, defenses would be down if it's, hey, come to this religious ceremony. I'm sure nothing bad will happen there. But not only that, she also makes sure that she has her ducks in a row in terms of the law. Because according to the Mosaic law, blasphemy against God was a capital offense. But you had to have at least two witnesses in order to properly accuse and execute someone. And so she makes sure that she does that. And so she sends these letters out. These men falsely accuse Naboth. The, the men of the city take him out and stone him. And it's an awful story. It's utterly evil and wicked. It's unjust. It's a, it's a gross use of power. It's a misuse of power. And as soon as she hears the news that Naboth is dead, she goes and she finds her husband. And she very coldly says to him, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. He is not alive, but dead. And the next verse says that Ahab, as soon as he heard the news, he jumped up and he went to Naboth's vineyard to take possession of it. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at this section, you can almost be tempted to think that the narrator is presenting the story almost coldly or with a sense of, of just callousness or heartlessness. 
You know, he's just giving us the straight facts. You know, Ahab did this, Jezebel did that, these people said that, and Naboth was stoned to death, right? Like those are kind of just straightforward, cold facts. But actually, I think when you look at the story closely, I think what you see is that the narrator is overemphasizing Naboth's name. And he's doing it in such a way that Naboth kind of haunts the story. And, it, and therefore, I think it highlights just the injustice of it all. I mean, in verses 13 through 16 alone, Naboth's name is repeated eight times, right? Like verse 13 says, worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. And they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. You see, it's absolutely clear based on how the narrator has structured the story, who is in the right and who is in the wrong here. And then if that wasn't clear enough, in verse uh, 17, God comes to Elijah. So Elijah is back on the scene. He's been absent for a little while. But God comes to him and he says, go confront Ahab for this injustice and pronounce judgment on him and on his family. And so in verse 20 here, now we, we see Ahab and Elijah meet. It says this, Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me. And because you have made Israel to sin and of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. And so it's a, you know, it's a harsh judgment here. Um, in verse 25 uh, the narrator gives us this little aside or this little commentary, and it says this. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Now, I told you that this story was scandalous for a couple of reasons, and, and obviously just the first way that it's scandalous is very simply how outrageous and evil it is. But the second reason that I think it's kind of scandalous is because of what happens next. Verse 27, and when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh, and he fasted, and he lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, and I will bring disaster upon his house. What? Are you kidding me? Ahab actually repents here and God acknowledges it. God is like, look, Elijah, do you see that? Do you see how this man is humbling himself before me? Now, some here question whether or not Ahab is actually repenting or, 
You know, maybe he's just scared of the consequences or is pretending or something like that. But personally, I, I think it does seem like in this moment, because God acknowledges it, that he is sincerely repentant. But as we will see, it is not going to last. It's a brief moment of, of, of repenting, but it will not last throughout his life. But even with that, as I was just like, you know, reflecting on this passage this week, it, it blew me away. And what blew me away was just to see how eager and how quick God is to show mercy and grace to those who repent. You see, God really does oppose the proud, but he really does also give grace to the humble. As it says in the book of Psalms, a broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. And so again, this story is scandalous for how wicked and how evil both Ahab and his wife are. But it's also scandalous because Ahab repents and God shows him a measure of grace. And I know that maybe for some of us, this, this, bothers, this bothers us, right? Like we want God to just strike Ahab down dead for how he has led Israel and for specifically how he has just treated Naboth. And yet the thing we have to remember is that God is not like us. God is patient. He's kind. He's slow to anger. And he gives us opportunity after opportunity to repent and to turn back to him. And again, as I pointed out, this, this isn't the first time that God has shown Ahab grace. Now again, whether it was the showdown at Mount Carmel or ending the famine or the victories over Syria or the many prophets that God sent to call him out, God, as we've seen throughout these chapters, has been pursuing and chasing Ahab and has been giving him chance after chance to turn from his wicked ways. And God does the same thing with us. God often gives you and I second and third and fourth and fifth chances. He keeps putting people in our lives who point us back to Jesus. I mean, I saw this in my own life. I grew up in a Christian home with parents who faithfully took me to church and pointed me to the Lord. But, you know, unfortunately, through my kind of middle school and high school years, I just was not interested in Jesus and, and really was not following him in any way. And yet God faithfully put people in my life. You know, one of the, the main people was uh, uh, this kid by the name of David Hopler. We started becoming friends my senior year, and, and he invited me to his church and, and just faithfully would, would pursue me and follow me up and ask questions. And, and eventually, God really used him and his family and, and a few others to, to really capture my heart and, and to lead me down the path of following Jesus. And so God does that. When we walk away from him, they'll just, you, you watch out. There'll be an annoying neighbor, an annoying coworker who shows up and starts talking to you about Jesus and how much they love the Lord. He just does that. He pursues us. That's why one author called him the hound of heaven. And yet, unfortunately, for Ahab at least, instead of leaning into that grace, instead of using this as a moment, instead of using this moment as momentum for a fresh start in following God, as I already mentioned, Ahab, his repentance does not last. No, in fact, it's, it's really short-lived. It's like a brief moment. And he'll go on and he will continue to ignore and disobey the word of God. And, and eventually, God is going to have to judge him. And the same is true for us. I mean, God will send people your way and he'll keep pursuing you. But eventually, if you continue down a path of rejecting him, you will come face to face with his judgment. And that brings us to our next section, which is a strained 
conversation. Look at verse 22, or chapter 22, verse 1. For three years, Syria and Israel commit, uh, continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Okay, so some time has passed here from our last scene, and we're reintroduced to a character we only briefly met at the end of chapter 15, and that is the king of Judah, a man by the name of Jehoshaphat. And we find out in the book of Kings and also in Chronicles that Jehoshaphat was a pretty good king. He was godly for the most part. And we also know from the book of 2 Chronicles that, that he and King Ahab were allied through a marriage alliance between two of their kids. And so perhaps that's why they're together now. You know, maybe one of the, the grandkids was having a birthday party and so the in-laws all got together. And so they're just sort of hanging out here. And as they're hanging out out of nowhere, Ahab is like, hey, well, you know, uh, Ramoth Gilead technically belongs to us, but, but, you know, the king of Syria has taken it over, and I'm not really said anything, but, but if I, you know, let's just say if by chance I wanted to go get it back, would you be with me? And, Ahab, and, and Jehoshaphat agrees. He says, yes, I, I will be with you. And then in verse 5, you know, Jehoshaphat kind of catches himself. You know, it's kind of like when you're halfway through eating a meal and you realize you forgot to pray. You're like, oh, shoot, let's pray, you know, still chewing the food. And, 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 and Jehoshaphat kind of does that because in verse 5, he says, you know, wait a second. Maybe we should inquire first of the word of the Lord. And so you can kind of see his, his godliness coming out here. And you can almost sense Ahab's annoyance at this suggestion. He's like, okay. And so he gathers 400 prophets together to, to ask whether or not they should go uh, into battle and all the prophets are like, yes, go for it. Go into battle for you will surely win. And one thing that's kind of interesting about this section for you Bible nerds out there um, is that in, in chapter 18, we're told that there are 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who all used to eat at Jezebel's table. However, though, when you dig into the story of, of Mount Carmel for the big showdown, it only says there that only 450 are mentioned. And if you remember when we went over that, Tom talked about, like, were there only 450 or were all 850 there? We're not quite sure. Well, because of that, some uh, scholars have suggested that perhaps these 400 prophets here are the, the 400 who were missing at Mount Carmel and therefore escaped being killed by Elijah. And so we, we don't know. We don't really know for sure, and it doesn't really matter, but it's one of those, like, interesting things that, again, Bible nerds kind of get into, like, well, is it or is it not? I don't know. Um, but either way, what we do know is that Jehoshaphat smells something fishy. He's like, I don't know about these guys. And, and so in verse 7, he says this, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? Um, some translations say there, Is there no longer a prophet of Yahweh here whom we may inquire of? Again, I think the implication here is this, you know, Jehoshaphat's like, you know, these 400 guys may be claiming to prophesy or to speak on behalf of God, but, but for Jehoshaphat's part, he's like, I'm not so sure these guys know Yahweh or speak for him. And so again, he makes this suggestion, and I'm sure somewhat annoyed, Ahab responds to Jehoshaphat 
by saying this in verse 8. He says, yes, there's one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat's like, let not the king say so. I mean, I don't, I don't know about you. I think you got to love this verse, right? Like Ahab's being brutally honest here. And he's like, yeah, there's one more guy, but I hate him. And, and Jehoshaphat's like, no, come on, Ahab, don't, don't talk like that. It's, you know, it's kind of like when a friend tells a joke too far. You're like, ah, that was a little too far, buddy. Um, and so what we see next is that they do, in fact, bring this prophet Micaiah up. And, and as they're, uh, he's being escorted before the kings, the, the guy escorting him is like, hey, man, all of the other prophets have, have prophesied that we should go into battle. And so, you know, make sure you toe the party line here. And Micaiah's like, look, man, I only speak what Yahweh tells me to speak. And that's all I can do. And so um, he comes before them and the kings are like, what should we do? And Micaiah's like, oh, yeah, go for it. Surely you're going to win the battle. And now some speculate that Micaiah must have said that very sarcastically or, or something like that, because somehow immediately Ahab responds by saying this. How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And so again, somehow Ahab knew Micaiah was pulling his chain here. And he's like, and Micaiah's like, all right, you're right. I was just, I was just messing with you. Um, actually, I saw a vision. And in the vision, I saw Israel scattered on the mountains. And they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, Ahab didn't like that comment very much. And he turns to Jehoshaphat. And he's like, see, I told you this guy stinks. He's always saying bad things about me. And then Micaiah launches right into another vision that he sees, and, and this time he describes seeing the throne room of heaven. And there's so much we could unpack here. This is such a fascinating vision and story, but uh, we don't have time to get into it. But, but basically what he says is, is, I saw Yahweh in his throne room, and he's surrounded by angels and the heavenly host. And he's talking with them about Ahab. And he's talking about how he wants to punish Ahab by having him go off and fight at Ramoth Gilead. And so God uh, then asked the, the angels, the heavenly host, he says, how should we do it? How should we accomplish this? And we're told here that one of the spirits steps forward and says, I'll do it. And God's like, how will you do it? And the spiritual being's like, I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all the prophets. And Yahweh's like, okay, go, go ahead and you'll be successful in that. And then Micaiah finishes this off by saying this in verse 23. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Now, again, I know like a couple other sections we've looked at this morning, this one here might bother some of you. I mean, it certainly brings up all kinds of theological questions around how could God lie or deceive or allow one of his angels to do that? But actually, I think if you look at the story closely, what you see here is that in the end, there is no real deception. And the reason I say that is because God, through the prophet Micaiah, tells Ahab exactly what he's up to. And on this point, I really appreciated what Dale Ralph Davis pointed out. He said this, Yahweh cannot be charged with deception when he clearly tells Ahab about the deception by which he is deceiving him. How could Yahweh be clearer and more transparent? The point is, is that it will make no difference. Ahab is beyond the point of heeding Yahweh's word, however clear, full, and detailed it may be. Now, maybe that'll help some of you. Maybe it won't. But, but I do think it brings up a good point. God has not totally deceived him. He has very much told him up front what he has been up to. 
Now from here, what we see is that Ahab gets super mad at Micaiah. He throws him off into prison and he's like, you're gonna stay in prison until I come back safely. And Micaiah's like, look, if you come back safely, then Yahweh has not spoken through me. And that brings us now to our final movement in the story. And that is a sovereign shot. Verse 29, so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. Okay, so we see here very stupidly, even with all of this information that Micaiah just gave them, these two still decide to go into battle. Although I, I think it's interesting here that Ahab disguises himself, right? Like, apparently he didn't think Micaiah was totally full of it. He's like, all right, there might be something to this guy, so let me at least disguise myself. Now, again, when you read this, you've got to feel for poor Jehoshaphat. Like, I, I don't know, this guy, he just comes across throughout this section at, as at best just very simple and naive. At worst, he comes across like a, uh, you know, a moron. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. I mean, number one, he should never have allied himself with such a wicked man, right? Like, what was he thinking letting one of his kids marry into this family? But, but not only that, even here, Ahab's like, okay, here's the plan. I'm going to disguise myself and blend in, but you wear your royal robes so that everyone knows that you're the king. It's like, what? Why would he agree to that? It's like, he's like, oh, okay, so, so you're going to blend in and I'm going to wear a big bullseye on my chest. Is that the plan? Yeah, that's the plan. Okay, sounds good, right? Like, what? What are you doing? Well, what we see next is that the Syrians do, in fact, spot Jehoshaphat because he's wearing royal robes, and uh, they begin to pursue him. And as they're pursuing him, he cries out, he's like, ah, you know, and, and they must have realized, like, that didn't sound like Ahab's voice, and so they, they leave him alone, and they stop pursuing him. But then we read this in verse 34. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore, he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and carry me out of the battle for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. Skipping down to verse 37, it says, so the king died and was brought to the Samaria and they buried the king in Samaria and they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria and the dogs licked up his blood and the prostitutes washed themselves in it according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. Again, a sovereign shot, a seemingly random arrow flying through the air, but guided all the way by the word of the Lord. And so to close here, what are, what are we to make of all of this? What are we to make of this entire book even? Well, certainly, as I pointed out in the introduction, according to 1 Corinthians 10, these stories were written down to warn us and to instruct us. And as we've looked at today's passage, or even the book as a whole, I think one of the main applications or lessons for us is we see over and over again this point that there are devastating consequences for not obeying the word of God. And, and we've talked about that all throughout the series, whether we talked about David or Solomon or Jeroboam or, or some of the prophets even, and certainly here with King Ahab. There's blessing and protection when we obey the word of God, and there are consequences and pain when we do not. But not only that, I think this story 
And this book, uh, what it also does is it creates and it stirs in us a desire for a king to come. A king who will be truly and completely faithful to God and to his word. You see, I know in many ways this has been somewhat of a, a weird sermon to preach on, given that today is Palm Sunday, right? Like, what a, what a weird Palm Sunday message. But on the other hand, as we end this book of 1 Kings with the death of one of Israel's worst and most evil and disobedient kings, it does cause us to long for and to turn our attention and our affections towards that faithful king, King Jesus. You see, over 2,000 years ago, God sent his son, Jesus, to this earth. And Jesus lived a perfect life. He, he uh, while being in the wilderness, tempted by Satan, he passed every test along the way. And all throughout his life, he was faithful to the word of God. He, he listened to the voice of his father, and he obeyed him. And on this day, Palm Sunday, that we celebrate, he mounted a donkey, and he rode on into Jerusalem. And as he rode in, they hailed him as king of the Jews, the, the Messiah, the one who was to come. And yet less than a week later, Jesus would find himself like Naboth, being falsely accused of blaspheming God. And as a result, Jesus too was put to death unjustly. However, though, unlike Naboth, who was put to death by just a few corrupt people, Jesus was ultimately put to death because of your sin and because of my sin. And so as we move into Passion Week this week, I, I want to just encourage all of us, myself included, to spend some extra time this week remembering and celebrating this amazing grace that has been shown to us. Like how thankful are you that we don't live in the days of the kings, that we are here after the death and resurrection of Jesus. King Jesus has revealed himself, and that gives you and I hope. That gives us something to celebrate and to look forward to seeing him face to face one day. And so my encouragement to you is just to spend some time this week, just even, maybe even thinking about your own testimony and just think through your life and think through all the many ways God has been gracious to you. And again, the ultimate way that he has shown that is in the death and resurrection of his son. But for now, let's, let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much this morning. We thank you that King Jesus did come. We thank you that today on this Palm Sunday, Lord, we remember him riding victoriously into Israel. But that, that, that victory was not like what the people thought. They thought he was going to come in and be king and, and take over and kick out the Romans. But instead, King Jesus rode victoriously on a donkey into Jerusalem to die. And yet, in, in, in a way only that you could do, Father, in an upside-down manner, that was the ultimate victory. He died, and three days later, he rose again, conquering sin and the grave. And Father, we just, as we move into this Passion Week, help us to enter fully into that story. Father, I pray that you would just Help all of us here. Quicken us to remember all the ways that you've been gracious to us. And help us to respond, Lord, to respond back to you with thanksgiving, to respond back to you with worship. You're so worthy. You're such a good and gracious God, and we love you. And so, Father, as we uh, move on in this service, help us to 
worship you. Help us to be present in this moment. You are here with us in this room. You are the king. Help us to turn our hearts and our affections towards you and to worship you for who you truly are. Pray this in Jesus' name.
All right, well, again, we hope to see you next weekend. I really would encourage you to, to lean in next week to uh, participate. We have multiple things going on with Good Friday at 7 um, on Friday night and then uh, the services on Sunday morning. Um, if you're looking for some uh, entertainment or to see something funny, um, I'm going to attempt to play guitar at the sunrise service uh, if you want to see that. Um, I'll also be giving uh, a short message as well. So, um, But yeah, we just hope that you can participate next week and, and join us uh, throughout as we celebrate the Lord's death and resurrection. Um, on your way out, uh, speaking of Easter, don't forget to grab some Easter tracks. Uh, they're they're kind of littered throughout the lobby. Take those, give them to neighbors, coworkers. Um, obviously, this time of year is a great... Uh, people are thinking about Easter. Even uh, I had uh, one of my wife's uh, aunts who's very secular, not a follower of Jesus. She's like... Uh, you got a big week coming up, you know, so like people are thinking about it, right? And so it's a good opportunity to, to share the gospel and to give the hope that we have in Christ. Um, though, as always, there'll be members of our prayer team down here. Um, if you have anything going on in your life that you would like prayer for, please make your way down here. Um, I thought to, for the benediction, you know, normally the benediction is some sort of blessing for you. Um, but this time I thought we would do a blessing to God. And it comes out of 1 Timothy 6, 15 to 16. So if you feel... Comfortable, raise your hands. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. 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 Go in peace.